Here we are with a special episode of the Florida Trail Runners podcast. For episode 37, we've got one of the most iconic names in Ultra, Chris Kosman. And of course, he's your race director, the man behind the world's toughest foot race, the Badwater 135. This is a race that not only draws people from across the world and across the country, but it also draws a lot of people from right here in the state of Florida. Now, as for Chris, not only do we know him for the Badwater, he's also got Badwater Cape Fear, Badwater Salt and Sea, and he was also a premier athlete. So, hey, let's just jump right into this. So Let's it's go. a treacherous trek that even the most elite runners can't finish. The Invitational Badwater 135 is widely recognized as the world's toughest foot race. This year, 84 of the best runners from across the Yet year after year, 100 runners brave the elements Ooh. for the Badwater 135 Ultra Aye. Marathon. The Badwater 135 Ultra Marathon started. It's an event considered to be the hardest endurance race in the world, which goes right through the heart of Death Valley in California. The defending champion, high school teacher Harvey Lewis. It doesn't get much tougher than this race. 135 miles through a stretch of the Mojave, considered the hottest place on earth. Three, two, one, bang! Hey! Now we're in business. <laughs> Is this like in about an hour, or what's your usual? Yeah, like an hour. Okay. I appreciate your interest. I, you know, I love what you're doing and promoting the sport. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. You know, I, I love doing it. And of course, you know, it's about time for Badwater with the ten Floridians that we got coming out this year. I actually pulled up our roster, Floridians. We got David Castro from. Uh, we got Amy Costa, Don Lazenby, Alexis Garcia, Karen Lebetsky, uh, Maria Paradis. I don't know how to say her name properly necessarily. Ashley Paulson. Michael Ryan, Ted Williamson. Yeah, in the Keys 100, the legendary race director, Bob Becker. I think that's the right list. Yeah, so we got we got a nice crop coming from Florida, and some are veterans and some are first-timers, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, that's going to be fun to see. But, you know, take me into the start of like your athletics. Like, I know you did a lot of cycling, and, you know, how did that all begin for you? Well, uh, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try to boil it down. Um, you know, how, how I became the, the Badwater Race Director and you know, spending my whole life in ultra-endurance sports, or the majority of it, I should say. Um, but basically, when I was growing up, my parents were school teachers, and they took a sabbatical leave for a year, twice. And we traveled around Europe and North Africa by car for a year, two different times. Once when I was three to four and once when I was 13 to 14. When we came back from the sep- second trip and I was 14 and I, was, I had skipped the eighth grade while traveling, going to start ninth grade, one of our, my parents' teacher friends came over for dinner and started telling us how while we'd been gone, he'd gotten into bicycling and he'd biked across America. And, you know, touring, like, took a month, you know, which is a pretty fast pace for touring. And I was just riveted by that. And I understood the geography because we had literally driven our car to the East Coast, shipped it to Europe, drove it all over Europe and Egypt and back, and then driven it back across America. And so I literally just crossed the continent. And so I could imagine that in my mind. And so 
I immediately wanted to get into bicycling and I was an entrepreneur already selling avocados from our nine avocado trees. And so I got a bike <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Yeah. I got a bike exactly like our, my dad's friend, whose name is Shell Jackson. Got in first ride I did was 50 miles up to Mount Baldy Village and back. This is in the Los Angeles region. And then uh, I'd just been cycling a couple of months and another one of my parents' teacher friends called me and said, hey, have you heard of Lon Haldeman? And I said, yeah, he's going to be in the Race Across America this summer, which was this brand new transcontinental bicycle race from Santa Monica to New York City that year. And this was the first race was going to happen. There were four runners going to, or cyclists going to be in it. And Lon Haldeman was one of them. And I said, yeah, I, I know who he is. He's, you know, he's doing this race. And he said, well, I'm from the same place, you know, town in Illinois. And I invited him and his support crew to base at our house before the race. Do you want to come over and meet him? And I said, yeah, of course. And so I was uh, fif 15 and I go over to our, my parents' friend's house and I meet this guy, Lon Haldeman. And, uh, you know, I told him, I'm going to do this race when I'm like 25, you know, which seemed just like an eternity in the future because <laughs> I was 15. And he was just like this tall, grown man, you know, with huge tan legs. And I was just like in awe of this guy. Well, he ended up winning it the first and second year of the race. And, uh, and, and so um, the following year, not only did I meet him, but we actually, I took him on a ride and I got to hang out with his support crew and I went to the start of the race and things like that. And, uh, you know, and I had really gotten into cycling and I, I was up to doing like 200 mile bike events and things like that. And uh, then that fall, I was at a bike race, and the founder of the Race Across America, John Marino, was there. And he was not only the founder, but but was the fourth place finisher of the four guys in the original race. And he was my idol because, first of all, he suffered the most because he was out there the longest. And secondly, it was his vision to have this race, and he put it all together and then also participated. So I met him and I told him that I wanted to be an ultra cyclist and that I wanted to set the first known time for running, or sorry, for cycling between San Francisco and Los Angeles. And he just was like, wow, really? Okay. And he pulls out his business card and writes his home number on the back and says that he'll help me. And so he became my mentor and, uh, and, I, and I got totally involved with ultra cycling and with Race Across America and its qualifying race and uh, ended up doing the race when I was 20. And this was after two years of working on the race staff and going across country with the event. And then when I was 20, I did the race uh, that year. It was from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. And I came in ninth, and I was the youngest finisher ever. And then after I finished that race, the light bulb kind of went on in my head that I wasn't just a cyclist or, you know, professional ultra cyclist, but I was an, an athlete, an endurance athlete. And so then I started branching out. And uh, so, you know, a couple years later, I was doing Ironmans. And uh, a couple years after that, I did a triple Ironman and I did an Ultraman. And so I was doing, you know, these ultra things of different types. And I started going to Alaska. Uh, doing these ultra mountain bike races on the snow. But then after three of those, I, I switched over to their snowshoe race, which is 100 miles uh, self-supported, only two checkpoints that only serve water. Um, and so I did three 100-mile running races in the Alaskan wilderness in wintertime on snowshoes. And so I just, you know, just did this huge deep dive into everything ultra, and then meanwhile, I was uh, working on races, and then I was putting on my own 
500 mile bicycle race and um you know but you know becoming even more of an entrepreneur and yeah and it just kind of kept going really and uh so i had this 508 mile bicycle race that traversed death valley sort of in the middle of the route and uh you know which of course is where the badwater 135 race starts now i had actually been invited to run in the badwater 135 uh, this way back when I was 24 years old, um, I had contacted the organizers and sent them my resume, which at that point was 98% ultra cycling, but I had done one Ironman, you know, which has a marathon run. And they actually invited me to compete. Um, but I ended up getting an opportunity to spend the summer in British Columbia creating an Ultraman style triathlon stage race. And so I did that instead. And so I've always had this thing where I'm an athlete, but I'm also, you know, an entrepreneur and a race director and a race promoter and, and just sort of overall ultra sports evangelist. And so I did that instead. But that put me kind of loosely in touch with the, the then organizers of the race. And, uh, you know, the years went by and I'd been operating this bicycle race through Death Valley uh, for uh, almost 10 years when the, the previous Badwater 135 organizers reached out to me and, and they were a shoe company. And they said, hey, you know what? We don't make any running shoes anymore. We don't make any shoes that are called Badwater. There's just no reason we should be putting this race on. And since you organized ultra sports events on the open roads, you know, full time, and in particular in Death Valley, we want you to take it over. And so I did. And so that I went out to the 1999 race to observe and photograph it and, and uh, you know, be there and, and, and also to, to, you know, just see it happen and, and learn. And then I was introduced to everybody at the conclusion of the race as the, as the new organizer. And so then starting in 2000, I, I was putting it on. And so now here we are 20 years later, and uh, it's, you know, overwhelmingly the focus of of what I do. And, and I, I haven't even had a cycling event now in six years for various reasons. Um, so it's, it's all ultra marathon and, and multi-day running and, uh, and I love it. So <laughs> sorry that it's <laughs> long winded, but there's like no short way to get, get from, from when I was 15 to, you know, 40 years later. Which of course that's funny because you know, I'm 26 now. Well, so who knows where you'll be in 30 or 40 years, right? I mean, you're already, you know, competing and you got this podcast and you're totally into it. And, and that enthusiasm, you know, could just take you in a, a, you know, hundreds of different directions. It's, that's what it comes down to. It's just passion and enthusiasm. Like you, you love doing these things and then hand in hand, you want to share it with other people and get other people doing it. And so, you know, in that way, you and I are like exactly the same. Yeah. You know, sometimes I feel like it's just finding something you're passionate about and just rolling with it. And some of that is just finding it while you're still young. I guess circling back to the race across America, how long did it take for someone younger than you to take that age record spot? Yeah, I was the youngest finisher ever. I did it when I was 20, and that record stood for 18 years. And so 18 years later, an 18-year-old actually from Alaska named Benjamin Couturier was, was going to be participating and I, I went down to the race. Uh, that year, it was going from uh, San Diego to, I forget, yeah, Annapolis or um, Savannah, Georgia. I can't remember. But um, I went down and I rode to, you know, wish him well. And I rode out the first 30 miles or so with him just to, you know, support him. And then when he finished, um, 
as an 18-year-old, I was on the phone with the race director to to congratulate him on becoming the new youngest finisher. So, yeah. So I had that record for 18 years. Yeah, that's. I, I think I remember hearing that somewhere, too. And I was like, man, you know, that's kind of cool because it's like, you know, when people set like big FKTs and, you know, the previous holder comes out there that just helped them out. Yeah. No, I've always been about, I, I've always, my whole life really is, I call it to seek and share adventure. And, you know, I like to seek it and I like to share it. And uh, so, you know, encouraging people to do these things and, and, you know, providing the venue to do it, you know, with my own events is what I'm all about. And so, yeah, I was totally supportive of him. And I think it was, you know, amazing what he did. Now, I will have to sort of wink, wink and point out that I still had a faster time. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not a fair comparison. You know, it's a different route from year to year and all that stuff. (laughs) And I'm sure the bikes are different now, too. Yeah, no, they're they're a little more aerodynamic, a little faster. (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, there's, uh, you know, every year there's more traffic lights you know, across America. So, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be dealing with that last thousand miles from, from the Mississippi to the finish line at this point in history, to be honest, there, there'd just be so many more traffic lights to deal with and so much more traffic. Um, you know, something people don't really think about, but you're on the open road. And so all of those things matter and they all add up. Yeah. So I guess with endurance cycling, does that really, do you think that transfers over into ultra running? Well, I mean, it did for me. Um, you know, because the aerobic engine is, is what drives the body when you're, whether you're cycling, running, swimming, paddling. Uh, so that's the main thing. And of course, cycling, you're using your lower body, you know, and, but it's not weight bearing. And, and so that's the biggest difference. But, but it, you know, for me, even when I was doing my hundred mile snowshoe races, I was still uh, 90% cycling and teaching spinning classes for my training. Um, and so, you know, I think it can, and I, and I've seen ultra cyclists get into ultra running or do both. And I've seen ultra runners cross over into ultra cycling. You know, when I had my 508 mile bike race, uh, you know, quite a few of bad water runners over the years did the 508 mile race. It was called Furnace Creek 508, like Marshall Ulrich did it, Danny Westergaard, Shanna Armstrong, uh, you know, a whole variety of, of bad water runners came to that over the years and did it. And they were, you know, overwhelmingly run training, but then doing some cycling to get ready for it. Um, there were definitely less of the ultra cyclists who were doing my bike races who said, oh, I want to run bad water also. Um, <laughs> but some did. But uh, the other difference, though, was that for bad water, you have to qualify to get into it. Whereas with my bike race, um, it was generally, you know, just open. And so that, you know, the, the cyclists had that hurdle of having to not only want to do the Badwater 135, but to get the experience and resume to apply and then get in. Yeah, I feel like it's always a natural progression when you're doing the ultra torture, you know, the, with the Ironman, ultra cycling, ultra marathons. You know, some people just embrace the whole wide world of ultra. And, you know, and I'm certainly one of those um, because I, I, for me, like I like... The ultra events that I, you know, have enjoyed participating in, as well as the ones that I put on, they go somewhere. You know, I don't do loop races and 24-hour races and things like that because I want people to explore what I call the inner and outer universes. And so I want to put together an epic, you know, landscape for the athletes to traverse. And then as they're doing that, they're traversing their inner universe at the same time. And, 
you know, so for me as an athlete, um, I, I enjoyed, you know, going from cycling into the running and the snowshoeing and the triathloning and the, you know, I did some ultra swimming races, 10, 12 kilometer long swimming races, open water. Um, you know, I, I loved all of those different ways of, of exploring the, the outer universe, um, you know, partly as a mechanism to explore just what's inside me. And, and, you know, there are those ultra athletes that are, that are like that, you know, most people are focused, they do one, you know, they're, they're totally into the running or the cycling or the try. Um, but there's a lot out there. And I think people, you know, I encourage people to explore the different options they have out there. I mean, if they've created this amazing aerobic engine and fit body and, and strong mind and, and they have the desire, you know, the, and the enthusiasm, those are the most important things. Um, then, you know, I think they just get out and try all kinds. Yeah, I think ultras have such a way of like, you know, it breaks you down in a way that, you know, I, I don't think you can otherwise because you're, you're constantly breaking down like barriers. Yeah, well, and let's face it. I mean, every, you know, almost everybody works really hard in life and, you know, works full time. They've got family and responsibilities and, and all of that is challenging. But, you know, we live in air conditioned homes. We drive cars everywhere. You know, we can get food delivered to our door. I mean, honestly, life is pretty easy if you look at it in like a grand historical point of view. You know, it's that, you know, I think this is one of the reasons that especially starting in the 1970s, ultra running, ultra cycling and Ironman triathlon all took off in that decade. And I think part of it was just sort of a reaction to in the modern world, life is a little too easy. And we need to create these challenges to really see what we're made of and what's out there and what we can do and to, you know, have just some sort of connection to our sort of primordial past when we had to go out and hunt our food or find it, you know, every day and, and survive in the elements and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess coming into trail running, um, when did you actually, what was your first trail race? Cause I know in, I think in 2015, you did the Everglades. My first trail race. Well, they would have been like, you know, shorter trail races. I, I lived in Berkeley for 10 years, uh, going to college and grad school, Berkeley, California, which is, we did, Berkeley's just in Oakland in the East San Francisco Bay have this whole series of parks that connect together along the mountains or the, you know, the hills behind Berkeley and Oakland and such. And so I, I ran various 5K, 10K and longer, both road and trail races back in that era. Um, you know, this was sort of an outgrowth of, well, I was discovered I was really an athlete and I had friends that were runners or triathletes. And so they'd say, oh, well, you should do this 5K that's coming up. And by the way, you have to break 20 to be cool. <laughs> and so, so I did, you know, I'd go do a 5K and, you know, run it in 19 minutes or something. And then I, then they're like, hey, there's this 10K coming up and you got to break 40 to be cool. <laughs> I was like, okay. And then I'd go out and do that in like 39 minutes or something. And, uh, and then, you know, I saw that, okay, you know, that's, that doesn't really inspire me and I'm more of an, you know, into the adventure. And so then I started doing local trail races, uh, but none of them were ultras, you know, they were like 10, 15 K trail races in the, in the parks behind Berkeley and Oakland. You know, this was you know, a long time ago. We're talking about like, um, early, like 30 years ago, like early nineties. And, uh, then after that, you know, my, first ultras um honestly my first ultra was when i did the triple ironman triathlon in france and so you you swim 
7.2 miles and then you bike 336 and then you run three marathons. And so that was really the first time I'd, I'd run an ultra distance uh, was doing that. Um, and I'm trying to remember, this was a while ago. Um, no, I think actually the year I did that was when I did also a few months previous. That's right. I had done my first 100-mile snowshoe race. So I went straight from not even having run a marathon to um, 100 miles on snowshoes. And so you could call that a trail race because it's on the Iditarod Trail. It's just that the trail was covered in snow. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And so my, my first ultras were a 100-mile snowshoe race and then um, running a triple marathon in the third leg of the triple Ironman in France. That is such a vast variety of terrains. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But, you know, I just uh, seeking and sharing, sharing adventure. That's what it's all about for me. And I'd been going to Alaska and doing these 200-mile uh, mountain bike races on the snow. And so I'd really fallen in love with the Alaskan geography and culture and mindset and, and the Iditarod Trail. And then I, you know, started seeing snowshoeing up there and and i just uh, there was a snowshoe company that had launched in san francisco called atlas snowshoe and i met up with those two guys who'd founded it right out of college and they sponsored me and i just totally got into snowshoeing and so um you know living in berkeley i could drive over to tahoe or other places and go snowshoeing you know in the winter and then i would go to alaska and i i went up there and i did four different uh, winter ultras three 100 milers and then one even longer that was a combination of the mountain bike and the snowshoe and i just love those races because i love the alaskan wilderness in the winter and also they were self-sufficient uh, generally speaking there was little to no support other than a checkpoint or occasionally a cap and you could go in and warm up um, but you'd be doing, you know, 30, 40 miles uh, at a stretch without any, anybody around or any help or, or anything. And, uh, and I just really liked that, you know, it was such a sort of counterpoint to like the race across America where you've got a minivan trailing along behind you at all times, giving you everything you need. And, um, so this was, you know, for me, a, a different way of just being an ultra athlete. Um, yeah, so you know, then later I, yeah, I did the Boston Marathon on the 100th anniversary and, you know, various other things over the years. Yeah, it was like a lot of these races, there's a ton of logistics that obviously have to go in, into it. I put on a little little race, a little 30K that's, you know, it's 15 bucks in a pot left for the race entry. So when it comes to the logistics, definitely not on the, on the level of bad water. Yeah, there's nothing really when it comes to logistics on the level of Badwater 135. I mean, the, my to-do list is so long and every year it gets longer. And uh, yeah, it's kind of insane. And it's grown over time. I mean, the, the previous organizers literally had a staff of two people. And so they really just ran a little pre-race meeting, started the race, drove along, took some pictures, and then they would go to Lone Pine, spend the night, and then they'd just get up and sit at the finish line. <laughs> and that was the entire organization of the race was that. And so the first year I put it on, I had about 25 race staff. You know, we had timing checkpoints and, a, you know, live webcast and photographers and, and uh, roving officials and in uh, all of that. And then it's just grown and grown and grown and grown over the years, the complexity of it um, to, you know, now there's about nearly 50 staff and there's, you know, a medical team and the webcast photography video team is huge. And there's eight timing checkpoints and, you know, roving officials up and down the course and the finish line, you know, has gotten more and more 
you know, fancy and, and, you know, requiring more people and, you know, it's, so yeah, it's, it's an insane undertaking. (laughs) I I feel like I'm, you know, even talking with you right now, two weeks, a couple weeks out from the race, I'm like, you know, this is a testimony to how confident I feel about my ability to still get a thousand more things done. (laughs) Even taking an hour to chat with you, but I appreciate what you do. And I also appreciate how enthusiastic Florida and Floridians are about all the races I put on. And so that's why I wanted to squeeze this in to chat with you. Yeah, we've got 10, 10 Floridians out there this year. Yeah, no, I was looking at the stats besides the 10 this year. Um, if you, I was looking at Badwater 135. We've had, a, we've had um, 111 Floridian entrants in the race over the years. We've had 127 Floridians at Badwater Cape Fear, and we've had 55 at Badwater Salton Sea. And uh, so, yeah, Florida is, you know, big into the sport, as you know, uh, but there's also just a real enthusiasm for Badwater events there. Um, And, you know, part of that is you got people like Bob Becker and Frank McKinney and others who've, you know, been to Badwater many times, and they really evangelize for the, you know, Badwater back in their home state. Um, and also, you know, you guys live in a hot climate and, you know, it's, there's lots of reasons that there's, you know, this cool relationship between Florida and Badwater race. You know, I had a question on, um, on Instagram about, cause one of the big things I guess really is about the selection process and like, how do I get in? Cause like, I know you have a process and I guess really what she was asking more of like, what kind of races probably weigh a little bit heavier because i know like we have the keys 100 which probably translate decently to the bad water yeah well and this is all explained on our website um people don't look at websites seemingly as much anymore (laughs) they just expect it in a comment on instagram or in a facebook conversation Um, but if you go to badwater.com and then you click badwater 135 and then you click the tab that says entry uh, you'll see not only what our qualifying standards are, but also to your point, we do have what we call our preferred qualifying races. So if somebody's a you know never completed Badwater 135 before, then to apply, they have to have done at least three 100 mile or longer ultra marathons. So not stage races, not 24 hour races, not backyard ultras. You know, actual 100 mile or longer ultra marathons. Um, but as you know, as an ultra runner they're not all created equal. Some are harder than others. Some are more similar to what Badwater 135 is than others. And so we basically are looking for people doing like the toughest of the 100 mile or longer races. And even more so if they're hot races like the Keys 100 or the Brazil 135 um, or others. But yeah, so we have a list on our website and we've got quite a few countries represented because the race is very international. And one of our goals is to have as many foreign runners represented as possible, as well as as many American states. Um, And so, yeah, so the the qualifying standard to apply is three 100s. That's the bare minimum. And then ideally, they are on our preferred qualifying race list. But, you know, that's we don't force that on anybody. People have, you know, they live in different places where they may or may not be near any of those races. And. It's expensive to travel and all of that. And so it's not strictly mandatory, but, um, you know, we, we, our goal in selecting the field is to select people that we think are extremely likely to finish the race. 
And so that that's really kind of our goal, you know, besides the international aspect. It's just we want people who are going to finish. And what's the best indicator of that? Well, they've done other really tough races. Um, and so that's what we look for primarily, but not exclusively. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things I've noticed over the years. Obviously, when the race started, you had like one finisher, four finishers, six finishers. And then, it, you know, it eventually moved up to, you know, 40%, 50%, 60%. But now it's like an 80%, 91% finisher rate. Right. Yeah. So the, um, the well, the you know, the race was very small. It started with four runners, which is interesting because there were also four cyclists in the first race across America. <laughs> um, and, you know, then it was like a dozen runners or so. And then it got to about 25. And then the last year that the previous organizers put it on, it was 42 and then uh, I took it over and, you know, and I wanted to make it bigger. Uh, ultimately, my goal was 90 and then we were able to bump that to 100. Um, and so we invite 100 or this year even 105 runners each year. And yeah, the finishing rate has gone up over the years. And, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, you know, when I took the race over 23 years ago, there were only maybe like 10 100 mile races in America. You know, like the the legendary races you've heard of, like Western States and Leadville and Vermont, you know, the Angeles Crest 100, there were only about 10. So therefore, there were not that many ultra runners and there were not many that many opportunities to, to do races like that. Um, and there also wasn't anywhere, you know, there was a tiny fraction of the knowledge available that's out there now about how to train, how to eat and hydrate and how to organize your crew and you know, best socks and shoes and clothing and, you know, all of these things, you know, now you can have an actual coach for ultra running that didn't even exist, you know, 10 years ago. And <laughs> so, you know, the, the sport has gotten, you know, the people doing the sport have gotten, you know, smarter and smarter and fitter and fitter over the years. And so the finishing rate was going up and the finishing times have generally gone up across the field, not just at the front um, over time. And, you know, which is which is fun to watch and be part of. I almost feel like I'm sort of watching like human evolution unfold, <laughs> which I guess take me through the years, you know, up to the, the COVID year. What's probably the biggest growth or changes for Badwater? Because I'm sure politics have changed in the state. You know, the roads have changed, road conditions, the heat, you know, I guess it, and the growth in social media. Right. So you know, a lot of things have changed over the last 23 years. So. Back in 2000, pretty much everybody uh, had, uh, you know, we was no longer using dial-up to get on the internet. But in well into the 2000s, it was still dial-up out in Death Valley. So just something as simple <laughs> as putting photos online of the race or time splits, we were doing it on a dial-up modem well into the 2000s. Um, so there's just crazy things like that. Um, and then... Um, you know, communications are always an issue out there, and that hasn't changed that much. There used to be basically no cell coverage, and, and then we got a little bit around Furnace Creek and a little bit around Stovepipe Wells, uh, which are mile 17 and mile 42. Now there's cell coverage from 17 to 45, but, you know, there's never been anything in the first 17 miles of the race. Um, and so there's just, you know, crazy things that most people don't even think of. And, uh, and I, I recently got a Starlink satellite internet system so that for the first time in <laughs> history, we will be able to live stream from Badwater Basin, 
Like, wow, you know, like that's never happened. And people who don't understand Death Valley will send us sometimes nasty messages like, why are, why don't you live stream the start? And it's like, well, have you ever been to Death Valley? <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> the hottest place on earth and there's very little cell coverage. And then the internet that exists, even now, it's not dial-up anymore, but it's still horrible in Furnace Creek. It's very hard to put things online. So now we have Starlink, and we'll just use that for for everything, and that that'll be a game changer uh, in terms of you know bringing the race to life more and uh, being able to live stream, and then to use it as a hotspot to get more information and photos and out and you know and social media and everything. Um, but yeah, it's really changed a lot in many different ways. First of all, you know the runners are coming in much more knowledgeable, much fitter much more accomplished and just because the sport is so much bigger and they have so much more opportunity to, to do so. Also, I would say the first like 10 years that I've been organizing was organizing the race. Most of the support crew members were, were like family. They weren't fellow runners. Um, and so, you know, the, the crew wasn't, didn't necessarily know what they were doing or necessarily understand the sport or how to really take good care of their runner. Um, now, 90% of the crew members are serious ultra runners who, who've been in the race before or aspire to do it in the future. And so you just have like a, you know, massive family of super fit, knowledgeable people out there now. Um, and that, that's just helped to make the whole race, you know, that much better and, and the runners more likely to finish. Um, but, you know, overall, it hasn't, you know, changed that much. I mean, it's still the same route. You know, Badwater Basin to Whitney Portal, that has never changed. So the route, the distance, all of that's the same. Um, the race has varied over the years. Uh, when it first started, it had a morning start. And then in the mid to late, mid, mid 90s, for five or six years, it had an evening start. And then it was a morning start. And then we had a morning start up through 2014. And then uh, uh, one big change was that in 20. 15 we went from the park service the national park service having basically seven pages of rules governing sporting events in the park we went from seven pages to 73 holy cow and yeah and one of the changes was that you know we had to then start running the race with a pm start like had been done in the mid 90s and and so we switched to the pm start starting in 2015 um but you know i maybe ironically Pretty much all the runners who did it with the morning start and then the PM start, they will all say that the PM start is harder. Um, reason being, there's really three main reasons. One, it's still hotter than hell at night in Death Valley, but if the sun's not out, people tend to push themselves a little harder than they should. And so just because the sun's not beating on them, they, they go out too hard uh, in some cases. Meanwhile, it's still 110 or 15 degrees out, and uh, they can overdo it thinking it's you know a little easier than it really is um, also they go straight into sleep deprivation uh, so immediately you're going into you know having been up all day because you know who can sleep during the day to running all through the very first night and uh, and so there's that and the other impact of starting in the evening versus the morning is that the runners are now doing the second of the three major mountain passes of the race in the hottest part of the race. Uh, it's called the Father Crowley Climb. And they used to do it when they started in the morning, they'd be doing that at night. And so they'd be doing this epic you know, mountain climb at night. Now they're doing it in the hottest part of the day and race. 
And so that, and, and, it's, and it starts at mile 72. So they're over halfway into the race when they tackle this massive climb. And instead of doing it, you know, under the starry sky, they're doing it under the burning sunshine. And so, uh, you know, the people who've done it both morning and evening start are all tell me that it's actually harder with the evening start. So, you know, that's something that's changed, but it hasn't changed the essence of the race. Um, so, you know, things change over time, but we're really proud that we've kept the essence of the race the same and the route the same and the way we organize it, not just the same, but hopefully better every year. Yeah, the heat has to be no joke out there. With that, you know, just to have a successful run out there, what are probably your five tips to a successful Badwater? Let's see. First of all, have a fantastic support crew. And as uh, I like to say, the crew can't win the race for you, but they sure can lose it. Um, So having a fantastic support crew and then really doing your homework so that you and the crew show up ready. This is a very remote area. You know, Lone Pine has got a hardware store and a market and sporting goods and, and things like that. But the rest of the route does not. And on the entire route, there are only four little settlements where you can even buy gas, ice, water, food, um, etc. And, and so showing up with a fantastic crew, super organized with, with basically your whole strategy pre-planned so that when you hit those little hamlets, you know, basically, mile 17 is Furnace Creek, mile 42 is Stovepipe Wells, mile 72 is Panamint Springs Resort, and then it's 50 miles to Lone Pine at mile 122. Those are the only four places that the crew can buy anything. So the planning and the logistics, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, climbing a, you know Mount Everest or something. Like, you've got to plan everything, bring everything, have a plan for just every thing that could happen and then be ready for your plans to not work out because it's 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 such an challenging race that you know almost nobody will have like their perfect race out there um then those that's the most important thing and then the other thing is to heat train um because you can train your body to acclimate to heat uh quite quite a bit i mean keep in mind that the majority of the world lives in a hot climate and many of them have no air conditioning, and they thrive and flourish. And so humans are capable of that. Um, but you, in the modern era, you've got to, you know, if you're going to come to the hottest place on Earth, which is Death Valley, you've got a heat train. And so we have like a four-week sauna heat training protocol on our website that our 15-time finisher, Art Web, put together over the years. And people who follow it find it very, very helpful. And they'll get so heat acclimated that if it's under like 90 they'll start to shiver um though that's when they're doing it right so and and this is important not just for the runners but also for the crew members because the crew members are out in the same environment and so showing up heat trained is critical um and then i would say finally having humility about the whole thing like most almost nobody has a perfect race even the winners will tell you oh if this and that hadn't happened i couldn't gone an hour or two faster um and so being really more uh, the, the sport of ultra running is there's this credo about always finishing um and that finishing is the most important thing and that is more true than ever at the badwater 135 because people really need to come with the attitude of they're there to take home their buckle And it's not just for them. They're doing it with and on behalf of their support crew and their family and their friends back home and their community. They're 
co-workers like so many people care about how they do out there and they're invested in it and so finishing the race above all else is is, is super critical and the overwhelming majority of the racers come with with that attitude and perspective and that goal which is to get that buckle and yeah that's a nice buckle <laughs> thank you yeah we we switch it up every year two or three you know either a dr- drastic change or some changes and yeah i'm particularly happy about this year's so i will say it's nice it's been uh it's been shared all over the fur page and uh a lot of the florida runners are posting it up <laughs> yeah no that's super cool and yeah it's not even just the runners too right like the crews are showing off the crews are even showing off those buckles yeah that's i tell we tell everybody that's another basically the best thing somebody can do before they apply and and hopefully come to compete in the race is to come out on a support crew so they have that experience so they know what the course and the conditions are like and the seven pages of race rules and all the little details and ins and outs are best learned by being on a crew first uh that's a huge help and people love crewing i mean there are people who crew every year and they'll never they don't even want to compete in the race but they absolutely want to be there every summer and be part of it um and so i i definitely encourage you i think you'd have a great time and and there's always people looking for crew even last minute sometimes um so yeah that would be great but hey so i guess i'll close it up with two questions i had from the instagram page okay so one's one's a fan favorite it's about the year 2006 and 2007 obviously he's ran a couple other years but those were like the famous years for david goggins i think of course everybody in the the bad ultra running advice group on facebook and obviously the florida crew want to know what was he like out there on the course? Because I know he was super quiet in that, that 2007 post-race interview. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I'm a huge fan of David Goggins as a human being. I just I love the guy, and I uh, respect him tr- tremendously. Um, he was in the race in 2006 and seven, uh, dropped out in 08, and then did it again in 13. Um, the, he's, a, he's a very interesting human being. Um, and I encourage everybody to read his book just to see what his life has been about. Uh, it's a remarkable story. Um, yeah, he, when he, I remember those first couple years, especially, you know, um, he was very quiet and I remember literally saying to him at the finish line that he was allowed to smile. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, he does these things for, for many very intense personal reasons. He doesn't necessarily love running. Um, and so he's not necessarily at races to like have a good time and to socialize and to laugh and smile and, and that's fine. I mean, he's, he's his own person and, and has his own motivations. Uh, I respect what those are and who he is. You know, he, he was shockingly a great runner at the race, you know, for, for how big of a guy he is. Um, and, you know, he did 30 hours, 18 minutes the first year, but then he came back the next year and he went under 26 hours. Um, and that was in 2007 and, uh, um, you know, I, I've just always gotten along great with him and I, and I will say one of the things, in fact, I just messaged him today saying, I just want you to know your book came out long ago, long enough now that we have people applying for the race who weren't even runners when they read it. And now not only are they runners, but they're accomplished enough that they can be applying for Badwater 135. And, and so he's, you know, 
and and it's not that you know we're looking for more applicants it's more about wow what an impact a positive impact he has had and continues to have in the world you know he just has inspired so many people to you know want to get off that couch and make a better version of themselves and i i'm just i just think that's fantastic so yeah, we, we, we see his impact regularly, and also with my other races. You know, people sign up for Badwater Cape Fear, Badwater Salt and Sea, and they will often reference David Goggins. That's how they got into running. That's how they learned about Badwater. Then they hit our website, and they saw we have other races. And, you know, there's this huge ripple effect from him, which is just awesome on the planet. Yeah, it's always interesting the mindset that different runners have, you know, their motivations, their whys while they're out there on the course. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's part of what's so fascinating and, and great about the sport is people are doing it for all their own reasons. You know, I, every year I say to the journalists who come to Death Valley to cover the race, you could feature any one of these people and have a great story. Everyone in this race has got a great story, is an interesting person, and is here for their own reasons, and is worthy of, you know, being featured. And so, you know, don't fixate on the podium or the winners, like, just get to know these runners and find find a cool angle and, and, and go with that. That's the thing that's cool. There's a lot, there's so many stories out there. Yep. So the other question was, what do you think is the biggest challenge in respects to a Florida runner? at Badwater. And uh, I guess this person lives in South Florida and spends hundreds of miles on the hot city sidewalks and streets. Right. And so, you know, Florida is an interesting thing when you compare it to what one needs to prepare for Badwater 135. On the one hand, Florida is hot, but it's a, it's a humid hot. And there's quite a difference between humid hot and dry hot. And so um, some runners coming from humid, hot climates um, you know, are caught off guard by how it's different to run in a dry heat. Um, and so that's a little tricky. Like the Floridians and, and, and people from there or Florida or, you know, other, sorry, or India, other places that are humid and hot shouldn't take it for granted that that automatically transfers to the, the super low humidity of the Death Valley to Mount Whitney route. Um, and then the other thing is that our race route has nearly 15,000 feet of vertical um, and so that's a huge factor because you have all of this ascending you're doing and descending. There's 6,100 feet of descent. And so, you know, that's very different from flat Florida. Um, and so what I see Florida runners do um, is a couple things. One, in terms of their local training, if they've got bridges nearby, they're running up and down the bridges. Uh, many of them are, are towing a tire on the road to make it even harder and to sort of semi-simulate going up a steeper mountain. So there's that. And then, of course, many, many ultra runners everywhere travel elsewhere to race. And so, you know, if, if Florida runners have the, the time and resources to, to go to, you know, mountainous races in the lead up to Badwater 135, I think that's a good experience also. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, Florida has a fantastic ultra running scene. You guys have so many great races. Um, and many, you know, and some of the big ones are on the road, you know, Keys 100 especially, but also Daytona 100 um, and others that are on the, you know, road. And, you know, ultra road running is different from ultra trail running. And historically, ultra running was 99% trail running. And then there was Badwater 135. Over the years, you know, more road ultras have come along. Um, 
but you know back in the day there there were basically none and uh so you know actually doing pavement training and pavement races i think is really important too for uh, for everybody and uh so training specificity is where it's at yeah that's definitely the key to success <laughs> yeah and you just do the best you can right wherever you live whatever your time and resources allow I mean, that's that's part of why ultra running is such a great sport is like people have to use their ingenuity and their creativity and their imagination uh to to train and to make all these amazing things happen yeah for sure well hey chris i appreciate this this is awesome yeah my pleasure appreciate it cool thank you all right well it's been good talking to you and uh, appreciate you reaching out and, and i'm glad we were able to make this happen yeah thank you And there we have it for episode 37 of the Florida Trail Runners Podcast. You know, bad water's coming up. It's only a few weeks away. And we're also one month away from the Skunk Ape Night Run, the Vero Beach Octopus, and the Trident. So there's tons of cool stuff coming up. But hey, until next time, happy trails. <laughs>